play chemistry. Hi everyone and welcome to Brought to You by Chemistry. What's brought to you by chemistry, I hear you ask. Complicated reactions, complicated exams, even more complicated romances. Yes, but in this case, it's also a new podcast series from the Royal Society of Chemistry. So you see the branding there. My name is Dr. Alex Lathbridge, and this week we are talking all things microplastics. Yes, now microplastics, are an increasing point of concern and have been found in a lot of unexpected places. In today's episode, we're going to be asking the question, what actually are microplastics? I've said it a few times now, don't really know what they are. And should we be worried? And how do we even go around answering a question like this? Well, of course, as you can tell so far, I do not know the answer. But I do have with me an expert who perhaps does know the answer. Hi, yeah, I'm uh, Dr. Winnie Courtney-Jones. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Plymouth. And I've been working on the topic of microplastics and plastic pollution for the last six or so years now. Um, I'm currently working on biodegradable plastics, but my previous role has taken me to the deep sea and some of the most remote parts of our oceans looking at um, plastic pollution. Wow. I can tell your job is fulfilling because there's a smile on your face. People can't, listening can't tell. They can hear it in your voice. There's a smile on your face. That's amazing. So what's your job like? like what do you do? What's your day to day? Well, it varies quite a lot. Um, and yeah, I'm really fortunate that I have a great job and I, I love what I do. Um, I get to be curious and research lots of different questions. So yeah, it's a, it's a great job. But previously, I've also been able to go to sea. Uh, and that that's great. So I've been able to sail across the Atlantic and into some of the South Pacific, um, actually trawling and sampling our oceans for plastics and then looking at what's what we find. Seeing as listeners so far have heard two episodes and they've got a pretty good idea of what plastics are, could you please inform them and me, us, what are microplastics? Because they're different from just regular plastics, right? Yeah, kind of. So I guess plastic is a big umbrella and microplastics is one type of um, size of plastic that we find. So generally they're defined as less than five millimeters in size. So they can be quite small, very hard to see with your eyes, something almost um, like the, the thickness of your hair, a piece of hair, all the way down to things that you absolutely can't see with, a, with your naked eye and, so you need, and you need a microscope to see them. So where do microplastics actually come from? Well, we can have two different types of microplastics. Ooh. They can either, yeah, Gets complicated. <laughs> Real quick, we got there quickly. They could either come from the fragmentation of larger items, so things like plastic bottles that break down into these smaller parts when they're in the environment, or they can be manufactured to be really small. So things like plastic pellets that are shipped around the world, they're the precursor that the plastic industry uses and melts down and makes all of those items or quite topical microbeads. We may have heard of them in the news a few years back where they were banned from personal cosmetics. So these are very small beads used as scrubbers, generally put in body washes to uh, exfoliate our skin. So two main types of microplastics, okay, but they okay, still- Okay, okay, one second. But how small are these microbeads? Like these, these, like I haven't used sort of shower gels like that for a while. So like, how tiny are they? Because I'm thinking like tiny millimeters. Yeah. Tiny 
like my skin. like um like small grains of sand you can just feel them so they're they're banned now in, in the uk and parts of the eu because we don't want to be putting that down the drain and straight into the environment but um they're still there in other products that industry uses like um industrial abrasives wow okay so microplastics like how did microplastics come about in the first place? Like, well, what's so important about microplastics that they're a thing? I think initially people were aware of plastic litter. You see it in the streets. It's big, it's ugly, you don't like it there. But it's hard for us to realise and, and see microplastics, which are just um, the breakdown. So we now understand that plastic doesn't just go away, but it breaks down into these smaller and smaller pieces. It fragments. Um, and then as it gets smaller and smaller, it can be eaten by a wide range of animals. So you think you've got a big bit of plastic. There's only larger animals with mouths big enough to ingest that plastic. But as the plastic gets smaller, zooplankton, fish, you know, the larvae, the animals at the very base of the food chain can interact with that and, and can eat that. So you've got very, very, very tiny creatures, right? And you've got very, very, very tiny plastic. And so this very, very, very tiny plastic is affecting the very, very, very tiny creatures. Exactly. That's, that's bad. And so does that scale up in the food chain? Like something eats the tiny plankton and then we and then so on and so forth. And then it gets into us. It can do. Now there's mixed evidence about whether or not bioaccumulation, which is exactly what you've just described, um, is, is happening or whether or not the plastics get eaten and then pass through the body of the animals. So it's hard for us to understand at the moment um, the effect of bioaccumulation, whether that plastic is retained in those organisms. Your work, it takes you everywhere. Now what impacts of microplastics have you seen during your work like globally? Yes as I've said I've been very fortunate to go to some extremely remote places including the deep sea, two of the ocean gyres, so these accumulation zones of plastics and these areas they're very far away so they're perceived as quite pristine far from the effects of people but I've actually found plastics in pretty much all of the samples that I've taken from the coastlines to thousands of miles offshore and from the sea surface all the way down to the deep sea. Thinking of larger litter, some of the more graphic images of plastics, I've seen um, you know, sea urchins entangled in plastics that have, and fishing nets that have been recovered from the Galapagos Islands. Another area that we think of as beautiful and pristine with such high biodiversity, such amazing animals that live there. But it's actually the microplastics that pose a potentially greater impact to the animals than larger plastics. Um, a wide range of animals can eat these small plastics. And whilst I've been out in the Atlantic Ocean and the South Pacific, we've been collecting trawls, so towing a fine net through the surface of the water. And the water just looks beautiful and inviting uh, and clean. And then you pull up this net and you see a confetti of plastics. And we've been counting those. So we're actually finding that there's more microplastics than there are fish larvae in some of these trawls. So the, pl the plastic is outnumbering the, uh, the life that we have at the very base of our ocean. What? No, that can't yeah. be really. 
hard to believe, isn't it? That's I won't say that's amazing, but I'm when I say amazing, I mean it in the sense of scale. What I actually mean is the opposite, direct opposite of amazing. So terrifying in its in its like that. Does that worry you? Yeah, it's all of those things. I think it's it's a you know it's great to be answering some of these questions and contributing knowledge and understanding about the issue of plastic, but it is also sobering that we're finding these items. I think what worries me the most is you know how how fast plastics. Um, since their mass production have been found in the environment. So some of my deep sea work has looked at invertebrates, benthic invertebrates, so that animals that live right down on the seafloor, like starfish and sea snails. And I was able to go back in time using samples that have been collected since the 1970s at the same location. And we actually found plastics inside their stomach all the way back in time inside their, their bodies. And if we think that plastics have only been mass produced since the 19, mid 1940s, and already only a couple of decades later, they're down thousands of meters on our seafloor. So I think really it's, you know, the scale of how quickly um, these plastics are being found all over the world that's the most worrying. So a lot of people will know microplastics generally bad. If you say someone we're finding microplastics in sea life, they're going to say, yeah, that's that's bad. But we haven't always known that's the case. I mean, what kind of tests do we use to determine whether or not something like this is harmful? Like, how do we detect it? So the best way that, that we have is studying things in the lab to work out whether they have any harmful effects. So we can have organisms and put them in a, a natural a scenario as possible, exposing them to different concentrations of plastics and see what happens. Um, so we know from this that there are a range of um, toxic effects. Organisms can alter their reproduction, they can alter their behavior and um, they exhibit, you know, well, the worst case mortality, but these other sublethal effects as I mentioned, like changes in reproduction, changes in their metabolism, changes in their feeding. And all of this over time may have a, a detrimental impact on the population as a whole. Perhaps if it suppresses the reproduction of an, of an organism, then there'll be less um, of that organism. All right. So we've got microplastics. Now you're telling me there are microplastics at the bottom of the ocean. How do you go around detecting and like measuring microplastics out in the field because in my head it's sort of like ghostbusters or um like a geiger counter that you have for microplastics and you can sort of like doo -doo 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 -doo, like in the water when there's a high density of micro is that it please tell me all science that isn't biochemistry i know nothing about so <laughs> i i wish i wish it was as simple as that <laughs> uh it's it's a bit more time consuming so First, we have to go out and collect the samples. Um, something like the deep sea, it takes a really long time to get those samples. It can take anything up to about six to eight hours to actually recover a sample on board because of the great depths that we're working with. But generally, we're using things like very fine nets to actually capture these small microplastics or uh, corers to sample the seafloor. Then we've got to go and actually extract the plastics from those, uh, those environmental samples back in the, in the laboratory. 
one of the main issues with studying plastic is that plastics are everywhere, as I've said. So they even come from us. The clothes that we wear are generally made of synthetic materials like plastics. So we have to be really, really careful and work in very controlled conditions to make sure that we're not contaminating our samples so that the data that we're reporting about the concentrations in the environment are correct. Now, um, I don't want you to get too alarmed, but if you look under your chair right now, there is an envelope containing, I want to say roughly 500 million pounds. All right. Now, what would you do with that money? Like your research, your work, what would you do to push it forward? And like, you can't say something like, oh, I'd quit science and go open a bakery because every scientist says that. And it's really annoying because all of them have thought about this like a lot. I don't think there's a perfect one, but involving as many different stakeholders with different backgrounds really gives us a better understanding of plastic pollution and the issues that it brings. So for example, in some of my recent work, I've combined land-based sampling with marine-based sampling with hydrodynamic models to understand where that plastic could come from. So that's one of the ways to bring about this holistic understanding. And through that, then we can understand um, the best solutions that we can implement. So I think if I had this, this stack of money, I'd um, look to employ the best team with different diverse skills. If you could give our listeners like one piece of advice, like one key thing to take away. I think all of the actions that people are doing at an individual level are fantastic, but really to bring about change, we need it at a higher level. We need policy and we need industry to, to bring about that change. It's very hard for consumers, conscious consumers who are trying to make the best decisions. But if you go into a supermarket and you're not able to make those decisions, um, then, then what are you going to do? So my bit of advice would be to, to pressure, to use your power, to influence policy, to influence government, um, vote and make the best, best choices that you can uh, with, with your consumer power. Um, and yeah, industry and, and government are the ones that really need a bigger change. So you as an individual can put pressure on them. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Now, from across the Atlantic, I caught up with Professor Paul Anastas, the director of Yale University's Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering. But apart from that, Paul is also known as, and I kid you not, the father of green chemistry. I'll let you guess which of those titles he puts on his business card. We're discussing his views on microplastics and hearing about his time working with President Barack Obama. Green chemistry and green, and that's amazing. I love it. I'd never, I didn't know green engineering was a thing. I mean, what, what does that involve? What is green engineering? Well, basically, if uh, you walk down the street or in any building, you, you look around and everything has been uh, designed. And that design is either going to incorporate things like the environmental impact, the impact on human health, the impact on sustainability, or it's not. When it does, it's called green engineering. Um, and the materials that you make it from, the building blocks that you make it from, are all chemicals of some sort. And if that chemistry considers human health, the environment, and sustainability, that's green chemistry. Oh, I love it. It sounds super positive and like optimistic, like it's trying to make the world a better place. 
Exactly. And it's all about invention. It's, it's not about what you have to stop doing or what you have to minimize or have to eliminate. It's all about what you can invent, what you can innovate, what you can create. Oh, I love it. Okay. Since you're a optimistic man, very, you sound very positive. I like that. I love a good bit of positivity. So what are some of your, like, I don't know, off the top of your head, are there any like green engineering, green chemistry inventions that you find particularly interesting? Well, the one that is getting a lot of attention recently uh, comes out of some of our work on how you can split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And that becomes very important because if you want to store renewable energy like wind or solar, you need a, a way of doing it. And hydrogen is a great way of storing, storing energy. Now, if you combine that hydrogen with carbon dioxide, you can make many, many different things. And one of the things that we've made is a luxury vodka. So there's a company here in Brooklyn called The Air Company. And it makes luxury vodka, award-winning vodka, from CO2 and hydrogen, basically air, um, the things that we uh, have in the air. And so why would we do such a thing? Because certainly we know that all of the vodka in the world is not going to cure the climate change problem, right? So it's to capture people's imagination that if you can make something as elegant as a luxury vodka, then certainly there's other things that you can make out of CO2, building materials, roads, bridges, etc. And so that's one of the things that we've uh, uh, been doing lately. I love that your marker as a proof of concept has been, okay, look, if you can make vodka out of it, the sky's the limit. Exactly. And it's funny that you should say the sky's the limit because the next large scale project that we're working on with NASA is rocket fuel. And how do you, how do you make rocket fuel on Mars? Um, and, and so if you can move from a luxury vodka into things like rocket fuel using very similar technology and using CO2, then you can see that you can do an awful lot with what we once considered a, a problem that we are now trying to transform into a solution. I love it. We're going from a problem, like you say, to a solution, but spinning back around to if something's a problem, like what tests do scientists do to like determine whether or not something is a problem, whether or not something is harmful? Like how do we know if something's harmful? Well, certainly when we're talking to humans or the environment, uh, toxicology is a well-developed science. Uh, originally, uh, toxicology is known as the science of poisons. So those are the things that cause any kind of harm, uh, whether it's uh, uh, harmful to our, our brains and it's neurotoxicology or it's uh, uh, harmful to our reproductive system. Uh, uh, reproductive toxicology, whatever it is, anything that is causing adverse consequence to our bodies or to the biosphere is, is measured and quantified by toxicology. And there's a wide range of tests in order to determine that. Okay. Okay. So that's really interesting, right? So seeing as this series is all about plastics, I'm going to hone in on some things that I found pretty interesting. By interesting, I mean a little bit terrifying for me. Microplastics, the idea of sort of microplastics. You've heard of microplastics, right? 
I certainly have. Okie dokie. Well, my question to you, the expert who had scrambled eggs this morning, is should we be worried about microplastics in our drinking water? I think the first thing to, to think about is what are plastics anyway? When we, when we think about uh, plastics, they, they can sound rather sometimes even exotic. Um, but a plastic is nothing more than a small chemicals linked together to make materials. Any molecule that links together, tens, hundreds, thousands of them linked together, becomes a polymer or a plastic. So these plastics, as we all know, are so tremendously uh, useful in our daily lives that you can almost not go through a day without seeing, touching, or feeling uh, hundreds of plastics. Now, microplastics are uh, the form of that plastic that either by design or by breaking down into these small pieces can make their way into the environment. And, and you mentioned our drinking water. So uh, should we be concerned about microplastics in general as a, as a general problem? I think that there's certainly some early data that suggests that there's a problem to be concerned about uh, for, for fish and for uh, certain types of wildlife. And so I think that it is something worth focusing on. So these microplastics, super tiny, um, I get that. But like, how do we understand them better? Like what, what are chemists doing right now to advance our understanding of microplastics like in the environment? and how to, I guess, tackle their problem. There are scientists around the world that are focused on the impacts of these microplastics. So not only looking to where they can detect them, uh, whether it's lakes and streams or oceans or drinking water, but also what the consequences of these are. So how do you go about doing that? Well, for instance, there are research groups that are exposing uh, things like fish, shrimp, oysters, mussels, ocean life to these, um, these plastics and ways that they can detect if they are having any adverse effect on their health. So it's very easy to run these tests on, on small fish or, uh, or oysters or or crabs or lobsters or things like that. What's more difficult to determine is what, if any, impact do these microplastics have on humans? There's big conversations that I always had about plastics and microplastics especially. Now, um, do you think that like at a larger level, like governments understand the, the problems, some of the problems that are caused by plastics in general? So I would start by saying that, no, I do not believe that governments have a good understanding of the nature <laughs> of the problem. Uh, and I, uh, I'm just as, concerned, yeah, just as concerned that they have an even lesser degree of understanding of possible solutions. Uh, so I, I recently wrote a piece called Plastics Aren't Bad, Bad Plastics Are Bad. And what it, that means is that uh, as we talked about, plastics are nothing but polymers, these molecules put together. Most everything that you see, touch, and feel is a polymer. 
So your skin is a polymer. A tree is a polymer. So all of these things are natural polymers. So nobody's terrified of, of a tree. Nobody's terrified of their own skin. Why? Because they have evolved to make sure that they are conducive to life and not harmful to life. The question we need to ask ourselves is, have these man-made plastics been designed to be conducive to life? Have they been designed with the environment in mind? Have they been designed with sustainability in mind? And the short answer is no, they have not. But does that mean it is impossible to design a plastic and a polymer to, to be compatible with life? Of course not. So that's what green chemistry and green engineering is all about. How do you understand the properties of a material, a plastic, so that you can make sure that it is not going to cause harm, but rather give us all of the functional performance that has benefited humankind extensively from medicine to communications to transportation. Keep that function, stop the hazard, designed through green chemistry and green engineering. Right, because, you know, I, I'm going to tell you the truth, Paul. I stopped listening after you said, Alex, your skin is a polymer. You've got me really freaked out about now I'm touching my own skin a bit too much. So, you know, when someone <laughs> says uh, you're now breathing manually and then you start sort of, you start being aware of this thing and your nervous system doesn't really react normally. That's how I'm feeling right now. So, and I want to say it's a second part. Maybe it's an American thing, but all the British guests we've had have all been like, yes, the government has some understanding of it. We think, and they might, you know, we just need to press them a bit more. Whereas you flat out just said no, just, just no. I, I mean, did. honesty, I like that. So with that in mind, like, you know, you were nominated by President Obama as a science advisor with the US Environment Protection Agency, you know, about a decade ago, right? Yes. So like, come on, like, do you have any interesting experiences or indeed anecdotes from that time? On any subject? On any, oh, I'm going to say in and around plastics or green chemistry and or green engineering. Like, no, just in any time, did you uh, throw, did you do three point shots with him? Like, I, I, I don't know, I'm just mean in that in general, because I'd like to know if at least on one side of the pond, the government has any interesting ideas about the whole gr uh, plastics issue. That's what I'd be interested in knowing. So, um... <laughs> Uh, so r remember, I was I was the uh, the head scientist of the Environmental Protection Agency mm -hmm. at the time when the Fukushima meltdown happened. I was mm -hmm. I was in that position when the Gulf of Mexico oil spill happened. So yes, there were many interesting uh, anecdotes uh, uh, about how how you you deal with things uh, and the. Perhaps one of the most important events that relates to this is the Gulf of Mexico oil spill. Here you have uh, an, an oil spill that is in the most pristine ecosystem that, that we have around the US. And you have to try to figure out how to have it cause um, the, the least amount of devastation. And, we tried, we, the US governmental response, tried skimming the oil off the surface. We tried burning it off the surface. We tried all of these different ways of doing it and finally came down to a, a decision that we had to make to add chemicals called dispersants that would allow 
the oil to be in a form with the microbes, the, the natural microbes that are there to consume it, to consume the oil and break it down into CO2. Now, I'm a person that's dedicated my entire life to making sure that chemicals are safe and not going to contaminate our environment and our bodies. And yet I'm being asked to make a decision about whether or not to put millions of gallons of synthetic chemicals into a pristine ecosystem. The, the good news is that if you follow the science and you, and you trust in the science, what happens is exactly what the science would tell you. The microbes were able to break down these uh, uh, oil drops and the Gulf of Mexico does not look like uh, uh, the tragedy that, that could have been. Following the science, I think, is what we need to do in dealing with any issue. And when it comes to microplastics, what that means is we know that plastics persist in the environment for a reason because of the strength of their chemical bonds. So the way that carbon is attached to carbon or carbon is attached to oxygen in these polymers are matters of design. Are we capable of designing next generation plastics and polymers so that they don't build up? They don't become these microplastics that can get into our food chain and cause harm to wildlife. Yes, we are capable of designing this and there are green chemists and green engineers around the globe that are dedicated to this next generation of polymers and plastics. Even looking at green chemistry, green engineering, really understanding it um, in the context of, of plastics, especially microplastics, like what do you think in terms of future research, looking to the future now, um, what future research do we need to do in order to understand this entire this entire problem this entire field of sort of plastics in the future better so there is is no reason for uh plastics to be designed so that they become these microplastics or nanoplastics and get into our our fish and our wildlife no reason that that has to happen so the next generation of research means that we design our plastics to be different they can either be degraded and broken down so that they're in smaller pieces that can be remade into plastics and stay in an industrial life cycle, or they can break down so that they are innocuous and maybe even helpful for the environment, whether the ocean or the soil. Either way is possible, and either way is being pursued by many different groups. So that's what we need to focus on. Okay, so seeing as you know, you've seen it, like I said before, at all levels, let's just say that right now you look under your chair, and there is 20 billion pounds, which I don't know what that is in dollars, but 20 billion pounds. With that amount of money, um, what would you do in terms of pushing the research that you, know, you look at the field in general forward? So it would all be focused on uh, design. As we as we mentioned earlier, everything that we um, see, touch, and feel has been designed. In, uh, in any building, if you look around you, any man-made product has, has been designed, but it has been designed for functional performance. What does that mean? It means that if it's an adhesive, it's designed to stick together. If it's a, if it's a design, uh, if it's a 
diets been designed to be blue or green or yellow. It has not been designed to be sustainable. It has not been designed to be non-toxic. So what I would invest in and research is how we get all of the functional performance that we want that have created technological miracles in the 20th century, but yet in the 21st century, we need to couple that functional performance with ensuring sustainability, that it's not going to be harmful to humans or the biosphere. Uh, a lot of the experts that have come uh, and spoken to us about have spoken sort of similarly. They've they've said that it's really important to think about design, think about the type of, you know, we can go into chemical bonds, all this sort of stuff. And some have even spoken about getting rid of certain forms of, of plastic, you know, certain uh, polymers. From your perspective, do you think there are any plastics there that you think are can easily be phased out now or shouldn't be with us in 10 years? I don't hate plastics. I hate hazard. <laughs> I don't hate plastics. So, How could I hate plastics? Some of my best friends are plastics. I don't hate plastics. <laughs> but it's, it's true of, you know, of chemicals. People say, oh, the synthetic chemicals. I, I don't hate synthetic chemicals. I hate hazard. I hate adverse consequence. I hate things that are that are toxic. Uh, and, and so, anytime something is is functional but toxic, I say no. It needs to be replaced with something that's functional and non-toxic, something that is not persistent, bioaccumulative, biomagnifying. We need to replace all of those substances that have those hazards hazards with things that are equally or higher performance, higher functionality, and non-toxic and sustainable. What would your one key takeaway to our listeners be? What would it be? A key takeaway. Some people have said in the past, you should pressure your MPs to make things done. Others have said, you know, you should join large experiments to help uh, scientists understand things better. But for you, what do you think? What is your one key takeaway you'd give to our listeners? Demand green chemistry. <laughs> so what I mean by that is a job. Ninety-nine percent of your listeners may not be aware of what green chemistry is, or that it's even possible. Many people accept that the products that we have are the best we can do. They're not even aware that scientific journals, and quite frankly, many different companies are are filling uh, our our shelves with green chemistry alternatives. This needs to be, be demanded. People need to know that there are safer alternatives and they need to demand them. I love it. I genuinely love it. This is, see, it's always great when you have experts who are very forceful with it. You've got to demand things, call to actions. I love it. And now it's time to hear some news brought to you by our reporters from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Hi, I'm Lizzie at the Royal Society of Chemistry, and I'm here with Professor Claire Gwinnett, Professor in Forensic and Environmental Science at Staffordshire University, and she's also Director of the Centre for Crime, Justice and Security. So Claire, that's quite a lot of responsibilities. Could you briefly describe for me what your role is at the moment? Yeah, it is, it is a big responsibility, isn't it? As soon as you've in, involved crime as well, of course, the responsibility goes up. Um, so basically, my, my role at the, the university is, as, as a professor is 
is very much sort of split up a bit like a cake like into three pieces so a third of my work is all about um novel research trying to solve um, problems out that yeah, actually in, in terms of sort of crime and justice and security things that are challenging in that kind of sector at the moment and um, so sort of the other third of my, of my work is around learning teaching so it's about educating undergraduates and postgraduate students um, and these everything from masters to P people who do PhDs and postdocs and then the other third is like the other activities that I always sort of to describe it, so yeah, professional activities, but these can be things like innovation, like inventing new products, it is liaising with police forces, like doing consultancy work, so working on casework, and then things like um, sort of like knowledge exchange, so getting getting the public involved with some of the stuff that we do, because it's important, particularly when we talk about forensic science, for the public to kind of understand really what forensic science is all about, because of course the public end up being jury members, and it's important for them to know actually what the science is capable of. And so what is your specific area of research then? So I, my expertise is in trace evidence, which is the examination of particulates. Now, sort of trace evidence can classify a lot of different things. So some people think it's DNA or they think it might be finger marks. But actually, there's a whole sector of it that is all about bits and pieces, like li literally particulates that you get from crime scenes. So things like hairs, fibres, glass, paint, pollen, all of the debris that you get in sort of like, you know, your day to day life that can be transferred during a crime. What I found quite interesting is sort of how my research expertise has kind of changed since about 2015 when instead of looking at these particulates from the point of view of crime solving instead it was looking about those as an environmental issue because of course fibers for example from our clothes are absolutely superb um, items of evidence if, if two people come in contact with each other like say in a, in a murder investigation but at the same time that transfer that happens which we need for, for to investigate the crime happens just generally in our day-to-day -day lives from washing our clothes wearing our clothes and it enters into the environment and we know now uh, public research scientists, the governments, that microplastic pollution is a real issue. So is where I'm sitting right now, am I breathing microplastics? Absolutely, yeah, we're, we're, com we're completely exp exposed to these. There's, there's different mechanisms how these microplastics are entering in the air. They're coming directly from clothes. They're coming out of uh, washing machines, dryers. They're spreading into the air, but they're, they're, they're transporting between the environments. So soil to air, air to water, water back to, to air. Mm. And... We didn't really fully know how much was in there, but now there's been more studies that are actually looking at, like like similar to the, the Hudson River expedition, mm. that are looking at how much is present there, this ambient amount of microplastics. And there's a shocking amount, there really is. A lot of the research prior to that was around um, looking in, in China, and there was also a study in Paris. And, you know, the amount that we get, we're exposed to that gets deposited on us, mm. huge what does that mean yes it means that we're, we're likely going to be breathing these in now the big bits yeah our body yeah. is fantastically formed to be able to to stop these entering into so, you know lungs and there's a there's a response to be able to get rid of those but we're talking about some of these ones that are in very very small mm -hmm. so when we talk about microplastics we talk about anything less than five millimeters but the predominant ones that we're seeing airborne are much much smaller like mm -hmm. less than 100 micrometers and then that's not even starting to think about the nano size microplastics which we know could quite easily be breathed in they can pass blood brain barriers because they're so so small 
so yeah unfortunately we are heavily exposed at all times and we and there's even been noted that you might think oh is it just in in urban areas like mm. maybe i'm sitting in a home or maybe i'm in a, a big city and that's where there's going to be lots yes that's true but this has been found in even remote regions now so the top of everest and the everest region the finding microplastics that partly is is to be explained by these airborne contaminants that they are moving around the world and depositing in even the remotest locations, there's a lot of research still needs to be done there to fully understand what the risk is to us from microplastics. Right. But it's important to understand that because we know we know that we are we are taking them in in, in different ways. Cool. Thank you so much. Next week we are going on a journey, a journey to track the life of a recycled plastic. It's a cool journey, trust me. To help us understand how it all works, we'll be joined by a deputy mayor, a local council member, and of course, a chemical scientist. It was produced by Hiran Joshi and Elizabeth Ratcliffe and presented by me, Dr. Alex Lathbridge. As always, if you want to learn a bit more about the RSC and plastics, you can visit rsc.li plastics. See you next time.